0: Hey guys, thanks so much for joining us right here for the Active Church Podcast. We believe that you can tell a better story, and we are so glad you are engaging with our content today. You're about to hear from one of our incredible teaching pastors, and we hope that you'll be impacted by this message. Thanks again for being with us. So I have a dad story for you, and it's something that took place about 10 years ago. And I'm kind of proud of myself and I'm kind of ashamed of myself. So I'm going to tell you the story and then you get to decide which category I should fall into, all right? So about 10 years ago, I took my son to a birthday party to a jump zone. And my job was to keep an eye on him as he had fun. And so I'm watching him play. He walks into a bounce house. He has a jelly ball. You know those jelly balls that we would throw around in elementary school that if you got hit in the face, it would leave like road rash for 17 weeks? Yeah, those (laughs) jelly balls. So he's bouncing in the bounce house, he's bouncing this jelly ball, and this kid comes over and takes the ball from him, and then begins to bounce it himself. And I was a bit irked by that, I saw it happen, but Gav, he's kind and compassionate at that point, he still is. And so Gav left it alone, he exited the bounce house, and so I would leave it alone. And then Gav walks over to this basketball court. And there's these lowered basketball hoops with these small basketballs. The kids get to practice being Kobe or LeBron. And so Gavin goes to do a dunk and has a great time. He's laughing, giggling with friends. And the same kid who took the jelly ball comes over and takes his basketball. And Gavin is kind and compassionate. He was then. He still is. And so he backs away. I'm more irked. I'm a bit peeved now watching this kid take two things from my son. But because Gav didn't do anything, I decided to leave it alone. And then Gav walks over to a kid's cornhole set and he grabs some bean bags and he starts throwing those bean bags. He's back to laughing and having a good time. And this same kid, the jelly ball jerk and the basketball thief, comes over and takes Gav's place in this cornhole area and grabs all of his bean bags and he starts throwing them. And because Gav is kind of compassionate, he was, he still is, he backs away. But I am now irritated. And I'm about to pound this kid. I was 31 at the time, and I was going to crush this five-year-old, all right? And I walked over, and as if the voice of God from heaven shouted out, our friends who were hosting the birthday party said, hey, it's time for pizza. The Lord saved this kid from near death, from me. And so I grabbed Gavin, we walked over into a room, all the kids line up against the wall, they're going to sing happy birthday. And it was at that moment that I realized that this jerk of a kid is actually a part of the same birthday party that we are. And so I wasn't paying attention to the moment we were singing to the birthday boy. I was paying attention to this kid. And if looks could kill, this kid would have been killed 17 times because I was staring a hole in him because I'm a mature, at the time, 31 year old father, okay? And as I'm watching this take place, and I'm thinking about what happened, I see this kid stand next to Gavin and he kind of leans in on Gavin. He kind of pushes Gavin. leans in and he starts to kind of yell loudly in his ear and finally gavin pushes him off and then he looks at me and he had these eyes that said father rescue me and so i did i felt the call i put on my tape and i walked across the room as a 31 year old man a father and i towered over this five-year-old kid and i remember saying these words to him you come near my kid again and there's going to be consequences Do you understand me? And the kid, who is five, by the way, just shrinks down, scared to death, and moves slowly away from my son. Now you can see why I'm kind of proud of myself, and you can see why I'm kind of embarrassed or ashamed of myself, right? So you get to decide what category I fall into, but I gotta tell you, I was over it. I was over this kid, I was fed up with him, I was done with him, and I wasn't going to allow it anymore. You ever been over it? You ever been fed up? You ever been done? That's the conversation we're going to have today and over the next few weeks. We're starting a brand new series called Over It. And if you're watching or listening for the very first time, my name is Mike, and I serve on the team, and I'm so glad that you're a part of the story that God is writing here at Active Church. We're going to talk today and over the next few weeks about Those moments, those situations, those circumstances where we say, man, I'm over it. We're going to talk about those people. We're going to talk about those struggles. We're going to talk about those issues. We're going to talk about those sins where we just say, man, I'm over it. And together we're going to learn some significant things and they might be a bit uncomfortable. They might even be a bit awkward. And one of the things that we're going to learn is this. Just because you're over it doesn't mean you don't have to face it. Just because you're over it doesn't mean that you don't have to go through it. And we're going to discover that today and over the next few weeks. You know the phrase, I'm over it? It's a phrase of exasperation in our culture, isn't it? It's us saying out loud, like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. But the phrase, I'm over it, in the kingdom of God, as followers of Jesus, as Christians, the phrase, I'm over it, in the kingdom of God is... It's a cry of desperation. It's us saying, like, I don't have it anymore. It's us turning to God and saying, God, I can't do this without you. You know, it's interesting because the God of the Bible that we have discovered, we've learned about in the person and work of Jesus is a God who actually is attracted to desperation. Like God is a good God and he does some of his best work in some of our most desperate moments. One writer says that while we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. Like God entered into the mess and he brought healing. God entered into the darkness and he brought light. God entered into the sin and he brought forgiveness. God does some of his best work in our desperate moments. And in our culture, we're not attracted to desperation, are we? When I was a junior in high school, I I dated a girl. On our second date, sitting across from me at the table, she said these words, Mike, I can't wait to see what our kids are going to look like. Needless to say that that girl is not my wife today, (laughs) because desperation is not attractive to us, but for God, God actually responds in powerful ways to your desperation and my desperation. In fact, the psalmist writes about this in Psalms 34. He says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit, Here's what we learn from the pages and documents that we call the Bible, from the story of God, is that God is always drawing near to us. And we discover that when we draw near to Him. Here's what I need you to know as we talk about those things that were are over, as we talk about those problems, as we talk about those crises in our lives. I think often we can convince ourselves that when we go to God in those desperate moments, we start to think that God looks at us and says, well, where were you when things were going well? Why do you only come to me when things are bad? But the truth is, the God that I know, the God of Jesus, the God that we've discovered in Jesus, the God of the Bible, is a God who always has his face turned towards us. He's always a God who is for us. He's always drawing near to us, even in moments where we may not be drawing near to him, even in moments where we ignore him. The God of the scriptures is a God who is always stepping in our direction. It's also important to know, That just because God is in this thing, in whatever we're over, the thing that we're facing, whether it's anxiety or depression or sin or issues or problems, whatever it might be, whatever it is that we're facing, even though God is in it, it doesn't mean that our circumstances instantly change. We often want God to flip a switch, right? Like, make it better right now, God. And that's not how things often work, at least in my life. Maybe in your life it's different. Let's hang out. I'd love to hear your story. But in my life, God takes his time because there's a lot of work that needs to be done in me. And that's the thing that changes the things in me, my heart, my mind, how I see the world, how I see people. When God shows up, he always reminds me and always reminds us that he is enough for us. And he gives joy very graciously in those moments where joy would seem like something we wouldn't want to choose. But this is the God that we have discovered in Jesus. This is the God we read about in the scriptures. This is the God we worship and we honor and we serve here at at Active Church. The other thing that I've discovered when we're over it is that God may be in it with us, but what he does is he doesn't lead us around the struggle. He doesn't lead us over the problem. You know what God does? God leads us through it. God walks with us through the problem. You might be over it, but God will lead you through it. You might be over it, but God doesn't take you around it. There's something that God does in those moments for me and for you, for his people, for all people. There's something he does. He transforms us, he changes us, and he helps us to see things differently. And this isn't something that is just unique to us today. It's something that God did in the men and women who were pursuing him long before today. Like in the story of Sarah, Whose story is found in the document that we call the Bible, in, in the pages and documents that we call the Bible? Sarah was struggling with infertility, and yet God is with Sarah through her struggles, and He gives her a son named Joseph. And Joseph, he had a hard and difficult life, and yet he had hope. He had hope in God. He had a moment where he's betrayed by his brothers. He's thrown into a pit. And then he's sold into slavery, and then he's thrown into prison because he's falsely accused. And yet God is with Joseph through the pit in the prison, and he gives him a place at the palace. The story of Jacob is in the scriptures. And Jacob had an issue with his brother Esau. We all know about sibling rivalry, right? I've got three brothers, so we fought a lot. And yet what we discover in the story of Jacob is God is with Jacob through the broken relationship with his brother Esau. And he gives them restoration. And friends, this happens over and over and over and over again. That God is up to something. God is transforming someone in amongst the issues and struggles and pain. God is with Israel while they're in slavery and through the Red Sea and in the desert. And he gives them freedom. God is with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego when they were thrown into the fire. And he gives them salvation. God is with David while he was being hunted down by the king, by King Saul. And he gives him the crown. God is with Jesus through the crucifixion. And he gives him the resurrection god is promising us that he is with us and he will lead us through whatever it is that we're facing and i know that we would love for him to do it instantly but it's in those stories that i just shared with you it's at god's speed it's on god's time sometimes when we look at our watch god's looking at the calendar right and when you look at those stories that i just shared with you from the scriptures like listen like sarah Sarah was able to have a son after years of infertility. It was actually 25 years before she got pregnant. 25 years. For Joseph, it was 22 years before his dream was fulfilled. For Jacob, it was 40 years before reconciliation came with his brother. For Israel, it was 40 years in the desert before they got the promised land. For David, it was 15 years before he became the king. And for Jesus, it was three days before the resurrection. Friends, we don't, we don't get to choose the length of whatever it is that we're facing and going through. The thing that we're over. We don't get to choose the length, but there is something that we get to choose. We get to choose our attitude. We get to choose how we're going to face it. And our ultimate freedom is found in where we focus our thoughts. Isn't that good? It's not something I came up with either. (laughs) It's actually found in the Bible. It's written by a man named Paul in a letter to men and women like you and me in a city called Philippi. They're called the Philippians. And he writes that no matter our circumstances, we get to choose where we place our thoughts. We get to choose the posture of our hearts. And in this letter, Paul isn't writing on a beach, sipping a drink, listening to the sounds of the waves, saying, hey, you've got to choose joy. No, he's writing from prison, a Roman prison. And by the way, the prison in that time is not like prison in our time. Like it wasn't three hots and a cot. It was like you get to eat if you have people that love you. You get to take a shower if you have people that come and visit you. The Roman soldiers aren't going to take care of you. And so Paul is literally sitting in a cave, chained to a rock, chained to the ground. And he eats if people come and find him and feed him. But yet he's writing this letter and he's desperate. He doesn't know what's going to come next. He's awaiting trial and possibly death penalty. And we know in history that he actually was put to death. And yet he's writing about joy. He's writing about joy. He's choosing The posture of joy, he's choosing an attitude of joy. And I really think that this letter is a gift for us because it's easy for us to get so caught up in what's happening around us. It's easy for us to get so caught up in bitterness and in cynicism and in sarcasm. I often joke that my spiritual gift is sarcasm and cynicism and bitterness. It's supposed to be funny, right? Like, that's not how God works. But what I need in my heart, what I need in my soul, what I need in my mind is joy. It's easy for me to get frustrated. I'm sure it might be easy for you to get frustrated. So what I want to do is I want to spend the first part of our our time in the letter of Philippians. I want to read the first six verses to you. So if you have a Bible with you or the Bible app near you, would you turn to Philippians chapter one? We'll start in verse one. And as you're turning there, I want to talk about three people real quick. This conversation is for three types of people. There's one type of person that is actually right now going through a crisis. And so as we talk about this today, as we have this conversation, you might feel yourself stirred up emotionally. You might see some things, some like salty discharge come from your eyeballs today, tears. You might feel yourself like, wow, that that totally connects to my heart, to my soul. Because you're going through a crisis, you can hear the voice of God from these pages, these letters that Paul writes. The second person is someone who is coming out of a crisis. You might want to shout amen and hallelujah as you hear some of these things because you discovered that God was with you. He didn't lead you around it or over it. He actually led you through it. And you're finding yourself on the other end of it. And so you want to just celebrate what God has done. And then there's a group of people that are about to enter into the crisis. Maybe you know or maybe you don't know. But you're about to enter into something that's painful, that's hard. The thing that you're going to say, I'm over it, fed up, I'm done. Honestly, this conversation is for everyone. It's for all of us. And so I want to spend some time... In the first six verses in Philippians, I want to read them through. And what we're going to discover is there's actually two thoughts that you and I can choose to hold on to that will help us in moments when we're over it. And then I want to give you a phrase that will actually help you to put it into practice. Are you ready? Let's read these together. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It reads this way. From Paul and Timothy, both of us servants of Jesus, the anointed one, to all of his devoted followers in Philippi, including your pastors and all, of the servant leaders of the church. May the blessing of divine grace and supernatural peace that flow from God, our wonderful Father, our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, be upon your lives. My prayer, my prayers for you are full of praise to God as I give thanks for you with great joy. I'm grateful for our union and our enduring partnership that began the first time that I presented the gospel to you. And I pray with great faith, because I'm fully convinced that the one who began this gracious work in you will faithfully continue to, the process of maturing you until the unveiling of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good words. There's a couple thoughts that I want you to hang on to, and then I want to give you a phrase that'll help you walk it out. The first thought is this. When you're over it, here's the thought that you can hang on to. Your it is not your identity. Your primary problem is not your identity. Who you are is bigger than what you're going through. Who you are is bigger than what you're facing. And I know that it's easy to focus on the size of our problem, but I don't want you to miss the bigness of God, friends. Because God is our creator and God is our designer and God defines who we are and what we do. He calls us His. And we're reminded of that. We're reminded of that in just those first few verses from Paul. That your primary identity is as a child of God. You are, you are God's kid. And that your primary problem doesn't define you. Uh, a couple years ago, my family and I went to see the movie The Lion King, the CGI version. And for the record, I'm a big fan of the cartoon. CGI wasn't that great. Although it's Lion King, so I was a fan of seeing it. I'm also a fan of the play. I loved watching that. We went to the Pantages a few years ago. And it's so fantastic. But I love this movie. And I found myself watching this movie... And getting emotional. I'm a big baby, all right? But I found myself getting emotionally stirred, and I was stirred in that moment when Simba was struggling with the loss of his father, and he was blaming himself, and he was running from his home, and then he runs into Rafiki. You remember Rafiki, the monkey? <laughs> and they have this conversation, and Rafiki is following him closely, and Simba turns to him, and he says, Hey, quit following me, who are you? And Rafiki responds, The question is, who? are you? That's that's my best interpretation of Rafiki, okay? But he says, who are you? And Simba says, "I, I think you're confused. And Rafiki responds with, I'm not the one who is confused. You don't even know who you are. Just let that sit for a minute. Simba in this movie is struggling with who he is. And I think in life, when we're over things, we're struggling with who we are. And then Rafiki takes Simba down to the river. And if you remember this scene, it's powerful where Simba looks into the river and he sees his reflection. And then in a moment, that reflection turns into the face of his father. And Simba is reminded of who he is and what he's created to be. He gets a sense of his identity. I think some of us need to go to the river today. And I'm just not talking about getting the boats and the jet skis and and going and having a good time, although there's nothing wrong with that. But I think some of us need to go to the river today to be reminded of who we are. I think some of us need to be reminded that we are a reflection of our Father in heaven. I think some of us need to be reminded that our primary issue, our primary problem is not our identity. It's easy to lose sight of who we are when we're facing whatever it might be. And so could I, could I just tell you who you are? Based off of what Jesus has said, based off of what the writers of the scriptures have said about you and me, you are uniquely created. You are wonderfully made. You are specifically chosen. You are intentionally designed. You are chosen and favored and forgiven and set free. You are loved and in Christ. You are a child of God. Let's go to the river today, friends, and let's see our reflection, the reflection of God in us. We are made in the image of God. Your primary problem is not your identity. Paul actually writes about his identity in these first few verses. He says in verse 1, introducing himself, he says, both of us, Paul and Timothy, are servants of Jesus. He gives clarity, first of all, of who's writing this. Like, it's Paul, who was Saul, who was changed by Jesus. And it's Timothy, who has actually found and followed Jesus. And we call ourselves servants of Jesus. There's one version of the scriptures one interpretation that actually uses this phrase, bondservant. You know what a bondservant is? It's somebody who has been set free, and because they loved their master so much, they actually make the cognitive choice to go back and serve that master in their freedom. This is what we do when we are set free by Jesus. We actually make a cognitive, mindful, thoughtful decision to go back and serve him because he has set us free. He has released us. He has forgiven us. And he's given us purpose. So we go back. And so Paul says, that's who we are. We are bond servants. We are free, and we are free to serve Jesus. We're here by choice. Can you imagine how your life would change if you defined yourself as a servant of Jesus? How your home would change, your marriage would change, how your work would change, how your parenting would change, how your serving would change. When you identify the way that Jesus identifies you, man, that would change everything for us. And then And then Paul gets more personal. Verse two, he says, may the blessings of divine grace and supernatural peace that flow from God, our wonderful heavenly father be upon you. So he references that God is our father and he says that we are children of God. And then the thing that I don't want you to miss is Paul saying like when God sees us, he sees Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, he sees what Jesus has accomplished in you, forgiveness and freedom. He sees his son or he sees his, daughter, and he takes all of what it might be that's trying to define you, and he removes it, and he places all of Jesus upon you. He gives you everything you need for life and godliness. Friends, what he's saying is this. When you trust in Jesus, you become a child of God. Paul writes later on to another group of Christians these words. The spirit you've received from God brought about your adoption to sonship, and we cry, Abba, Father. We cry, Daddy. It's an intimate moment. Your primary identity is that you are a child of God not your primary problem. You're not defined by a political party or a skin color or a financial status or a relational status or any status at all. And then here's what I don't want you to miss. Paul says, grace and peace to you. Like these two words are the Siamese twins in the New Testament. Like they don't go without each other. And they go in that order because you will never experience the peace of God until you experience the grace of God. You will never experience the peace from God until you experience the grace from God. It's always grace and peace because we need God's gift to us. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. God gives it to us. His love, his grace, his forgiveness, his freedom. And then peace lets us know where we stand with God. Friend, the thought I want you to hang on to is that your primary problem is not your identity. Your it is not your identity. Second thought. you can hang on to your life is God's work your life is God's work listen to these words in verse six I pray with great faith because I'm fully convinced that the one who began this gracious work in you will be faithful and will faithfully continue the process of maturing you until the unveiling of our Lord Jesus Christ when I work at home whether it be in the house whether I'm cleaning or I'm in the yard and I'm working in the yard mowing pulling weeds trimming I own my space And if anybody comes to help me, which I'm grateful for, they better do it my way. They better mow it with the lawn lines that look like a baseball field. They better trim the hedges that look fantastic, right? Like, that's what I want. Not because they're doing it wrong, it's just what I want. And what I love about these words is that Paul is saying, like, God is a God who owns this work. God is a God who's got this. And I am a guy who mows my lawn and I want it to be a certain way. I think it's a godly trait, (laughs) because I wanted a certain way, and God is leading my life, and your life, and all of those who trust in Jesus. He's leading us in a direction, and God is a God who will start a good work, and will complete a good work. God is a God who finishes what he started. Your life is God's work, but it doesn't mean that you don't have some work to do. You know what your work is? To trust God with his work. To trust that God is up to something, even if you don't see it, or feel it, or know it. Because God is up to something in you and he's doing a good work in you. You didn't start yourself. You didn't convince yourself or convict yourself or save yourself or forgive yourself. God does all of that. And here's what I want you to know. I am confident that God will finish what he has started in you. And you have a choice. In moments when you're over it, when you're fed up, when you're done, you have a choice. You have a choice to run. You can run towards God or you can run from God. And here's what you'll find. If you run towards God, grace and peace. You run from God, chaos destruction but you get to choose because God is a gentleman and your life is God's work and maybe maybe you're over it whatever it is that you're over maybe you're fed up maybe you're done and I want you to know that whatever you need today I want to invite you to start by moving close to Jesus you get to choose how you're going to face this you get to choose who you're going to face it with you get to choose who you're going to trust it with move close to Jesus. Man, there's something about him. There's something just about his name. There's an old hymn. I'm a longtime Christian. There's an old hymn that said, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Can I take you back to the Lion King for a second? Do you remember whenever Mufasa's name was mentioned, the hyenas would shake? Like they would be like, Mufasa. Ooh, say it again, right? Like they, they would tremble. There's a, a verse from the brother of Jesus. His name is James. He says that the demons, when they hear the name of Jesus, they're like the hyenas in The Lion King and they tremble at his name. Ooh, say it again, right? There's something about the name of Jesus. It's the only name on heaven and on earth and under the earth that can bring salvation. It's the only name on heaven and on earth and under the earth that can bring freedom. It's the only name on heaven and on earth and under the earth that can bring hope. It's the only name on heaven and on earth and under the earth that brings grace and peace. It's Jesus, and you can decide how you're going to face whatever it is that you are over, So here's the thoughts you can hang on to. One, your primary problem is not your identity. And two, your life is God's work. So trust him with it. Now I want to give you a phrase that you can put into practice as you move forward so that you can trust God with whatever it is that you're done with, whatever it is you're fed up with, whatever it is that you are over. And this phrase actually comes from a pretty incredible basketball coach. Her name was Pat Summit. She was the Lady Vols coach at the University of Tennessee and the Lady Vols were an incredible basketball team. And Pat Summit had won a lot of national championships and a few years ago, she was diagnosed with dementia and it's eventually what took her life. And when she was diagnosed, she was being interviewed and asked, like, how are you facing this, Pat? She said these words, I know my God will supply all of my needs. And so every day I wake up, And I say to myself, left foot, right foot, breathe. Left foot, my primary problem is not my identity. Right foot, my life is God's work. Breathe. I'm going to trust him. I want to invite you in those moments when you're over it, whatever it might be, anxiety, depression, you're defeated, you're destroyed, struggling, you've got some sin, you've got some issues, you've got some problems, whatever it is, you're like, I'm done, I'm over it. I want to give you a phrase to put into practice so that you can hang on to the truth that your primary problem is not your identity, to the truth that your life is God's work. And here it is. Left foot, right foot, breathe. This week, when you wake up. Tomorrow, when you wake up. Tonight, when you go to bed. Left foot, right foot, breathe. God's got this. And just because you're over it doesn't mean you don't have to go through it. But know that God is going through it and leading you through it, and is with you as you go through it. Left foot, right foot, breathe. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, with whatever we're over, with whatever we're done with, with whatever we're fed up with, in this moment, we stretch out our hands, and we hand it to you. And may we be reminded that our primary problem is not our primary identity. May we be reminded that you, God, are up to something, that our life is your work. And may we trust you, left foot, right foot, breathe. In Jesus' name. And together we say amen and amen and amen. We hope you enjoy the Active Church podcast. If you want to know more about Active Church, you can follow us on our social media platforms at Active Churches. Don't forget to subscribe as well to stay connected to future podcasts. And if you are a local, we would love for you to experience the room with us. Sunday services are 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. in Yukaipa. See you next time.